0: on today's episode of the nifty nick show i'm thrilled to have on sam bruckman the founder of verdigris ensemble and the mastermind behind betty's notebook an incredible nft that was launched on async art and was years in the making he's now working on an unannounced project in the metaverse space the show's all about learning from those with skin in the game and the world of nfts and as usual today's guest is no exception so let's get started
1: if you're looking for some crypto, you just found the right spot. We wrap it up, one of a kind, NFT straight to the top. Now don't go trading based on comments, we provide in the show. It's not investment advice, but our picks do tend to blow up. Like a rocket, they say. Many people have compared it to people's every day. So if you're trying to figure out what's going on in this space, please do not worry, your boy Nifty Nick is hot on the case, yeah.
0: And I'm here with Sam Bruckman, Uh, Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks for having me, Nick. So maybe we can kick things off. I want to jump into uh, your NFT involvement and Betty's Notebook and things like that. But uh, what I think is most notable is your background in both classical music. And then I'm interested in how you got into this space to begin with. But let's start with the music side. Like, what's your background as it applies to music? Yeah,
1: so uh, I'm actually, I, my, whole, my whole background, you know, I, I studied to become a classical musician, and my primary instrument is actually conducting. Uh, actually, technically speaking, you know, when I went to college, it was voice, and so I started as the voice was my fundamental, but then that quickly transformed into actual conducting and conducting of voices or choirs, and orchestras and so on and so forth. Um, I have a particularly uh, unique sort of background. My, my family immigrated from the Soviet Union in 1990. I'm first generation American and so I kind of grew up with this duality and this dichotomy of like a Soviet Russian household and uh, a very American school life and friends and so on and so forth. So it's it's you know it, it sort of instilled this, um, discipline but also this like need to you know conquer and 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 do what my parents never did you know my parents would always say like we came here for a reason you know we we sacrificed uh, a lot to come to this country for the american dream and and we want you to be able to have every opportunity for you to be able to accomplish that and so that's that's like the fundamental of like why? Why I'm here right now in the blockchain space, um, but I was originally trained specifically in classical music, and actually I, I taught as a public school teacher for four years before I I was like I can't I have to move on to something else. This is I, I'm not getting enough creativity. Started my own professional choir called Verdegree Ensemble which is a nonprofit in Dallas, Texas, and then subsequently have been trying to apply blockchain technology, and Betty's Notebook was the first way of, for us to do that.
0: The way that you phrased that made it sound like you're holding primarily your parents' dreams on your uh, shoulders, so that, that's, uh, <laughs> that sounds like a lot to do. But in terms of driving you into the blockchain space, you sort of set that as the context for it. Like, what actually did bring you into the blockchain space?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, my parents and my immediate family are all mathematicians. So, we grew up in a household with stock traders and brokers and high frequency trading, you know, like all sorts of things, computer programming. Um, and so I grew up with a heavy emphasis in math. In fact, like, you know, like my grandfather, when I was like eight years old, tried to teach me like quantum, you know, mathematics and physics and all this different stuff. And I always like rebelled against that. So like I was sort of encouraged to follow in the footsteps of my parents and, and everything. And I, my brother, who is 10 years older than I am. Um, sort of did that a little bit and then transitioned very uh, later on, I think, into into crypto and into the blockchain space and actually founded, uh, created a fund called CoinFund. Um, and I was sort of the ugly duckling in the family. And I was like, I want to do music. And my parents were like, that's a horrible idea. That's a terrible idea. Why would you ever want to do music? And I was like, you don't understand like, I can't not do music in my life, so I, I eventually and eventually, like we we had a few scuffles here and there where they're like, "You're not doing music, you're doing mathematics, or you're doing something else that's profitable." And I'm like, "Yes, I'm doing I'm doing music," and at a certain point, I was like, "I'm doing music no matter what. Like, you can support me or not. I'm doing it." Um, and I uh, went, I attended, you know, Westminster Choir College, and as I'm doing this, as my brother who's ten years older than I am. Is starting his crypto fund, you know, in twenty fifteen when I graduate from college, he's like, "Sam, go buy Bitcoin." I'm like, "You're crazy! I can't afford a single Bitcoin. They're like so expensive." At the time, they were something like four hundred dollars, um, and. Uh, I, you know, he was like, just just trust me, just buy it. So I bought, like, you know, I bought a little bit. And then in 2017, he's like, buy Ether. Ethereum's the next big thing. You have to buy it. I'm not leaving this phone call until you buy Ether. And, and then, you know, like in 2018, you know, this is the time when I'm sort of like still discovering what exactly I'm trying to do. You know, 2018 was like, I was still teaching as a public school teacher. Um, I was starting a nonprofit, um, you know, professional choir. My brother was like, you know, you should really look into blockchain technology. There's a lot of potential here, um, and there's something called NFTs that you that like is sort of like emerging a little bit, and you should really, really kind of consider that um, as you go forward. And I'm like, well, how do I do that? And he was like, I don't know. You're gonna have to do a bunch of research. So I, I was doing a lot of research and in 2019 and 2020 you know 2020 was actually a really pivotal year for many reasons because that was the first year that i gave up like any sort of uh, reliable income Uh, as a musician to do gigging all the way through. So I was a full-time musician. I was like conducting a synagogue. I was singing in a church. I was conducting a community chorus. I was conducting a professional chorus. I was like uh, singing with local professional ensembles. So I was like doing, like I was living technically what's considered to be like the, the, the singing dream, the professional choir dream. And when coronavirus happened, it like shut everything down for like a a year and a half. And that was like totally. Like, for two weeks, I was completely disillusioned and, like, totally depressed because, like, I was supposed to, like, fly, you know, across the country to conduct choirs and orchestras. And, like, I had an entire schedule dedicated to conducting. And, you know, like, it all fell through like, like that within, like, a one week. And I was like, well, what the hell do I do? I have no idea what I'm going to do. And um, at that point, you know, this was, like, March of 2020. I started to do like a lot of research, you know, NFTs were a little bit more popular now, um and I was like, well, there might be something here, but I don't know enough to be able to like do a project yet. So, um, you know, in March of 2020, I started doing a lot of research and I started finding that there were platforms that minted NFTs. Um, And in August, I started applying to various different, um, you know, platforms and marketplaces just because, you know, I was like, I can't, conduct right now, I can't do anything, and I've always been really interested in this, and I'm also like, you know, I, I, am an entrepreneur at heart. Like I started a nonprofit. I'm very good at it. Or I think I am. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue. I'm just gonna see where this takes me. And so, you know, I, I originally like in August I started, um, or in September rather, I found a job with async art. Um, and this was like subsequently after a big move, I lived in Dallas, Texas for five years now and, and I moved back to Brooklyn and, um, You know, basically that's, that's how it started. That's, that's the basic framework. I went from being a musician to COVID and COVID completely decimated my entire like career schedule. And I was like, well, what do I do from here? Well, I've always been really passionate about like crypto. And, you know, I was also doing things like DeFi and all all sorts of other things. And that, and that is basically what led me. Uh, that's how it started and what led me down to, to where we are now.
0: Well, as my mom always taught me, you can always rely on crypto. Uh, <laughs> Smart mom. But, but, but uh, it it is interesting that you actually mentioned that in terms of something that you said earlier on during that was that uh, you were like, I rebelled against my parents who were, uh, you know, forcing quantum physics down my throat. And I don't think that there's a lot of people that would actually say that to be like, God, mom, like, stop, stop <laughs> telling me about quantum physics. Like, this is so annoying. I have to do like. Quarks and all these other different things, like geez. Um, But anyways, okay. So it's it's a unique starting point. So okay, so you jumped over to uh, Async Art, um, uh, and what was like your role there?
1: So I worked. My official role <clears throat> was I was the business development manager, and I am currently. Well, I I sort of worked in many capacities. So they they were at the time they were sort of starting up and and getting, uh, you know, sort of entering into the. They had just I think they just had launched in March or April of twenty twenty, and in September when I came in, it was just like like they were just just beginning on that journey, and. I kind of did everything. I kind of helped with everything. So even though I was business development and I was like tasked with bringing on artists and companies, I was also doing you know some of the marketing. I was also doing um, some of the dreaming of like the future of it. And I think that the founders also saw my um, my experience as a musician as something positive. Uh, because they, they have, you know, they, they obviously the, 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 the framework, the first framework that they started with was art applied or programmable means or dynamic artwork applied to visual art. But then, you know, like eventually they were thinking, okay, yeah, I can see, you know, maybe we are sort of thinking about a, like a music component, which was released a couple of months ago, um, and so like my role sort of spanned a couple of different areas. It was business development. It was also a little bit of marketing. It was also a little bit of like uh, framing the framing of async music and and sort of developing it and getting a musician's perspective on like what's going to be really really effective and really successful. And then you know like various other things here and there. But that was basically like the job description or what I
0: ended up doing um, while I was there. We'll dive deep into I think uh, async art. Comlin uh, he's coming on in a couple of weeks. But in the context of this, it sounds like Betty's notebook was the main project. but was that like how long after you had started? was it before you decided to do that individual project?
1: Well, so I think you know, sometime in the fall, there were a lot of discussions about what is the next thing for async, what what direction do we go? And I think, um, you know, the founders had a particular um, vision for the music component, and very quickly the the conversation went towards that, and so. Um, I uh, I was really excited about that, obviously, because I saw that potential. In fact, when I was interviewing for Async, I was like, "Programmable art doesn't just apply to music, uh, to artwork, to visual art. It can apply to like literally anything. Like it can apply to like all sorts of different artistic mediums, including music." And you know, it was around November that the team was like, you know, okay, Sam, you you have an ensemble, um, you know, want would you be interested in participating in like the first wave? And I was like, I'd be honored to if that's if if that's something that you guys feel comfortable with. Let's let's proceed. And um, I have just the piece of music for it. So taking a step back from this, from the async part. Um, Verdigris Ensemble uh, is a professional choral ensemble that I have been sort of uh, I found i founded in 2017, um, and I ha- I'm the artist the founding artistic director of it, and essentially what the mission statement of it is is to be able to reach a wider spread of audiences for classical music. So we see um, so many problems today with classical music as it stands. Like, it's a very, um, exclusive, it's a, it's an exclusive art form. It's not really accessible. You can't really, like, you can't pull out your phone during a performance. You can't really cheer for anybody. And so it, it's, like, it's kind of binding. Um, and also, like, uh, you know, I think people tend to really glorify, um composers of you know the 1700s and the 1800s and um it's just not as relevant anymore so like you know bach mozart beethoven like all these people like they're great i wouldn't necessarily say that they're the most relevant to today's to today's society and so the thesis of verdigri ensemble um and the sort of social experiment that i really wanted to create was how do we get younger generations to appreciate this art form And how do we create music that's going to be really, really interesting in that case? And so what we found very quickly was that when we started doing things like performing in unconventional spaces, commissioning music, collaborating with other interdisciplinary arts, whether it's visual artists, dancers, projections, v- cinematographers, videographers, all sorts of things. We started to find that we would get people to come to our performances and be like, I never thought that choral music or classical music could be this interesting. you know it's like a backhanded compliment, you know, but it's a good sign. It's a great sign. And you know like just to give you an example of like one performance we did we did this uh, piece called the Constellation of Apollo. It's a piece that sets the direct transcripts of the Apollo 8 mission around the moon. Um, and what we did was we collaborated with scientists at a, at a local planetarium to simulate for audiences what the astronauts would have seen as they were saying the words that the, that the ensemble was singing. And so we had like this, there's actually like a really great photo on our website where you can actually see audiences like reclining and like watching, like all that stuff. And that was like the first the first time that, that anything like that ever ever like happened. And it was we were really thrilled about it because audiences just like totally loved it. It was the first time we sold out, it was in, in the first year. Anyway, so the point the point being is that like let, let's bring this back into context of async. So um at that point I was thinking how what piece of music do we try to to use programmable means for? in this context. And the first thing that came to mind was a piece that we commissioned in 2018 called Betty's Notebook. And the, the, um, the basic premise of Betty's Notebook is in 1937, a 15-year-old girl named Betty Clank hears what she thinks is Amelia Earhart on the radio. She hears things like, this is Amelia Earhart, this is Amelia Earhart. This transmission lasts for about, I think it's like 40 minutes. And in those 40 minutes, She writes down everything, everything that she can possibly hear and then goes for the next 60 years like basically is defined by this notebook that she writes in. You know, like I define myself as, you know, a a tech person, but also a musician. Um, Betty Clank defined herself as the person who heard Amelia Earhart. And so she would spend the next 60 to 80 years trying to prove its authenticity and only in 2005. Uh, people like sort of looked at it and said that there was circumstantial evidence that pointed to the fact that the document could actually be true. And um, the way that they found it out was through some of the things that she was writing. So one of the lines, one of the main lines that is super mysterious um, is, tell my husband George to get the suitcase out of my closet. Well, Amelia Earhart's husband George actually like pulled out that closet or pulled out that suitcase and found an envelope um, in case Amelia Earhart perished, that was written by her. And so there's this like entire mystery around it. And so I thought that that was a great idea. And so we proceeded, uh, and, and because Betty heard it on a radio, we were like, this is meant to be recorded. It's meant as a piece of art to be transmitted through online means. And let's, let's put audiences, let's make audiences detectives and let's lead them through a story and lead them through this mystery, this fascinating mystery, and and make them like hear this story, especially because, you know, Betty was not was ignored for like 80 years and for the first time were able to take her words and and set it to music and then like immortalize it on the blockchain. So it was it was a very like very apropos, very like beautiful sort of like artistic high level vision there.
0: I mean, you tell the story great. Uh, I'm sure you've told it many times now and and it's inspiring, I think. So who ended up actually like reading the text of this? and was your ensemble the one that ended up singing it? Is that what ultimately happened? like what happened?
1: yeah. so so in two thousand and five, a man named Rick Gillespie, who has a nonprofit called Tiger, which is an acronym for the international uh, it's it's it stands for like it's a nonprofit dedicated to the recovery of lost aircraft. And they're most notably known for uh, their work on Amelia Earhart. and Betty's notebook is a part of that. So Rick Gillespie actually discovered it in two thousand and five and put it on the internet. So you can actually go on the internet. you can look at some of the notebook pages. You can see his analyses. You can see what what he thinks about it. And then um, in two thousand and eighteen, uh, the organization, Verdegree Ensemble, commissioned composer Nicholas Reeves to actually create the music behind it. And then what ended up happening is the members and the singers, the professional singers of Verdegree Ensemble um, recorded it during coronavirus. And that's an entirely different story because it was like it was it's literally a miracle. Like we had to anyway, I can t- I can talk about it later. But um the the 16 members of the Verdegree Ensemble recorded it. At at different times, we had like an entire schedule for it, and subsequently, then edited, mixed, mastered, and then put on the blockchain.
0: I mean, that's quite the project. So, async art, you know, who had hired you as an employee, the story is really compelling. So, if I'm the business owner, I'm saying, oh, this is a great idea. But it's interesting that your employer was also like, hey, yeah, let's work with your nonprofit. What was that setup like? It seems like such a interesting line to walk as an employee of this company with this like side hustle that you have.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, one of the great things about async is that um, you know the team is so uh, is so you know all in different places. Two co-founders live in California. one lives in Boston. Um, you know, and then several other folks live in, in, in several, uh, several different areas. I lived, you know, obviously in Brooklyn and I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think it was, I think it was very interesting. We, we made sure to sort of program to do all of this different stuff after work hours. So actually during the, the work day, I was working at async and then I would transition immediately from the work day into the recording studio um, to, to mix and master. And it was never, it was never at the same time, actually. So, um, that was sort of the balance. The balance was like I'm business development for async and there were times when I had to actually fly down to Dallas, but it honestly, you know, because we're also remote, it really didn't matter necessarily. Um, and like I, you know, I would fly down to Dallas. I would work for Async during the day, and then I would go to the recording studio, and you know, at night and on the weekend, um, to mix and master. And of course, I hired, you know, the some of the best people around me to like help me with it. So, you know, like we had a sound engineer that that's a three-time Grammy Award winning, uh, three-time Grammy Award winner. Who his name is Trainagella. Um, in Dallas, I hired a producer that flew down from Kansas City. So much of the work was actually sort of already uh, being done behind the scenes, even without me. Um, as as we were doing, the the biggest thing that I helped do was sort of facilitate all of the moving parts into one room uh, to be able to record, mix, master, and then put onto the blockchain.
0: I don't want to get hung up on this one component, but it, but please, it is please. it is um, a logistical one. So. Who owned this project and the content? Was that your nonprofit, your ensemble, that ended up owning that? And that was a project that was then launched on Async Art. What was the logistics of that? It's
1: very interesting. So the intellectual property of the music itself belongs to composer Nicholas Reeves. The performance rights, so when we actually signed contract with the composer, we received performance rights to the piece, and the rights to be able to record it, that recording in and of itself is essentially like that. That's intellectual property of the organization. So what we did was we recorded the different aspects um, with the permission of the composer, and obviously, like the composer received a pretty sizable percentage of the project um, for it. And then we supplied those uh, those MP3 files. Um, to Async and Async basically coded it, and um, you know we still retain, and even after it's been sold on Async, we still retain all IP rights, and the composer retains his. But um, what basically, based on the terms of use of Async, uh, you know, you get to own the limited edition uh, token on the blockchain through Async Arts, like smart contract, essentially.
0: I mean, that sounds like a lot of legal stuff involved. I literally just published an episode with Jacob Martin, who's an attorney as well, and we were talking about intellectual property. I mean, that sounds like a lot to uh, navigate, but you managed to pull it off. So I'll actually just move on from that component of it, but congratulations on navigating that part of it. And then uh, the... Uh, second part, which I'm wondering about here, is well. Maybe we can discuss what it is. So, like the actual deliverable that came out of this uh, on Async Art, how would you describe it?
1: So let me talk high level, and then I'll, I'll sort of talk about the details. So, if um, if viewers or listeners of this podcast are familiar with the video game Mist. And they'll understand that Mist was a very unique video game for its time in the sense that, you know, it was released, I think it was like 2000, 2004, something like that. And it was this thing where you had to like, you saw a screen and you had to like click on certain elements to discover clues. And that informed your sort of trajectory and adventure to, to f- solve the puzzle of like, what exactly happened on this island. Well, Betty's Notebook is exactly that, except it's like, it's in musical form. So there are four main components that were split, uh, that, that make up the piece. And within those four main components, or stems, as Async calls it, there are three different variants. And the variants actually put attention to certain aspects of the music that you that that can be emphasized. And I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. So um, the four main components. One is the choir. The choir sings what's written in the notebook and sings what Betty Clank wrote. The second component is Betty herself. So Betty is actually talking, and Betty and the choir actually interface a lot in the sense that, like, Betty is sometimes is like, and then I heard Amelia say on the radio, "SOS," and then you hear the choir sing "SOS." You have uh, Betty's radio. So Betty's radio is this um, sort of simulation of white noise and. Um, different uh, like jazz standards of the time that kind of go in and out of the transmission um, as if you're turning a tuning knob to try and hear Amelia Earhart's voice clearer. And then finally, you have Betty's Choir. So Betty's Choir is the most sort of like ambiguous in this, Um but it's essentially, it's actually very interesting. What the composer, Nick Reeves, did was he took a spectral analysis. So he actually like physically Took the audio of Betty's voice, put it through like this program, and within that you can you can isolate certain notes within the within the human voice. So there's something called overtones, and overtones essentially boost how your voice sounds, and they they make your voice sound louder. So there are multiple pitches essentially that that make up a, a person's voice. And what Nick did was he actually took certain parts of those pitches, reinserted <laughs> them into into the um, into the piece, and it actually sounds like the gentle whirring of an airplane, or like uh, a plane, or, or like a propeller, essentially, at times. And so these four pieces make up make up the entire uh, the entire work. Now, within those pieces, the owners of those pieces can actually toggle between different parts. So, like, if if you are the owner of Betty's voice, for example. You get to toggle like obviously her interview is very long like you can you can focus on multiple different things you can focus on Amelia Earhart you can focus on her navigator Fred Noonan who was in her, in the in the planet with her at the time you can focus on the overall story and so that's exactly what we did we we gave the owner the opportunity to toggle. Which story they wanted to hear? Was it Fred Noonan and his and and what by all accounts seems to be like him being delirious from hurting his head during the crash? Is it Amelia Earhart specifically and what she said and like the, the timbre of her voice? Or is it is it like the overall story? So this is a little bit of a mixture of the two. With um with the choir, you get to choose the owner gets to choose how the choir sounds. So do they sound like they're singing in a concert hall? Do they sound like they're singing in in a studio? Did they sound, or is it directional sound? So sometimes you hear, um, you know, certain parts in your left ear, and then sometimes you hear certain parts in your right. And there are actually some really really cool. Uh, effects that are being done, where the sound actually goes left, right, left, right, and goes really quickly, as if to simulate the the plane crashing and like this complete disorientation, which is super, super cool. And then finally, um, you know, Betty's voice, Betty's voice, or Betty's um, Betty's choir. Sorry, Betty's choir is very interesting in that um, what the what the composer has done is he's put in certain clues into Betty's choir. So like. Sometimes there's an alarm bell that you can hear. Sometimes it's like um certain crackling noises or certain um, bits uh, and pieces of very interesting um different like clues that the that the that he puts into it. And as a result, like, I've spent like over 400 hours sort of mixing, mastering, and editing, and then subsequently listening. And I'm still discovering new things that the composer has put in over time because they're they're like sort of small kernels that are super, super interesting and super different. And then finally, um, Betty's radio. So the owner of that gets to choose which... um, uh, which jazz standards come weave in and out of the texture and we use we had the choir sing those five different jazz standards that the owner gets to choose from. So that's that makes up the entirety of the piece. So essentially in 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 if I were to describe Betty's notebook in two sentences, my first sentence would be it's like a simulation. It's a simulation where we put audiences in front of a 1930s shortwave radio and we have them turn a tuning knob to try and hear Amelia Earhart's voice, but there's constant interference that happens and it's and it's difficult. And the second sentence would be it's like it's like a game of mist. We put our audiences as sleuths, as detectives, to try and discover um, uh, Betty's story, and to ultimately uh, make make their own deductions of whether it's true or not true, or whether it's it's compelling or not compelling. And that's and we used async uh, music as sort of the um, the purveyor of that story, and it you know. Based on the sale of the work, it seems like people found value in it, and we're very thankful for that.
0: It sounds like there's a resource where you could actually go and play all these different things individually, regardless of uh, you know what NFT you end up with. But my understanding is it's similar to some of the other pieces of async art in the way that you can pick different stems. Some of the pieces, you mentioned the four components slash stems and then different variants within them. I can go and pick up some of those, mix them together, and compose my own creation, essentially, which then gets minted as an NFT. It becomes its own independent audio file. Is that a, a correct summary?
1: Yeah, almost exactly correct. So um, we there is something called limited edition NFTs. And the limited edition NFTs are... Very interesting because they allow the they have many different things that make them that that sort of decide scarcity and all sorts of things. So number one, it's the what you're doing when you buy a limited edition NFT is you can snapshot the latest version, the latest iteration of the piece. and when you do that, you can also see who's the master owner, who's the stem owner, when it was minted, um, and and you know so what the rarity is of that limited edition NFT. So as the person, you can't actually change, you can't actually choose your favorite when you buy the limited edition NFT. You can snapshot what you see or the changes that have been made. And so what what the, it's actually a very interesting dynamic because the person who buys the stems. Has has the power to change them to whatever they want to be changed to whatever the piece needs to be changed to, um, and then you know as a result people can snapshot that quickly. So what owners can do is they can like, for example, like if you're Nick, the owner of Stem Two, uh, Betty's voice, and you're like, no one has ever heard of uh, the Fred Noonan perspective. So I'm going to change it to the Fred Noonan perspective for 30 minutes and 30 minutes only, and that's all anyone will ever be able to hear, only for those 30 minutes, and then I might be able to decide to, you know, mint that, you know, or, or change it to that in a year or two years, whatever. Then what, what you do is, you know, you can you have the power to do that. You can go on Twitter and say, I'm changing the stem in thirty minutes, you know, check it out here, and then all of a sudden people people have the opportunity to mint it in that form and then to keep it and 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 have that and that's like that sort of decides scarcity ultimately um, and, and gives people the opportunity to mint different types of iterations of that song.
0: Okay, so that sounds wildly complex. I want to simplify that real quick. So it sounds like there's two roles. One is the role of the person who has bought those actual stems. And let's just start there. When I buy a stem, do I own the entire stem? Or is it, I own one variant of that stem? Or is it derivative, 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 where I basically can't buy that original stem. The first person was able to create their composition. And then the next person was able to pick up from there and create a derivative off of that. Like I'm confused as to which approach it is.
1: Let let me simplify. If you are the owner, there are four stems. Only four people can own those stems. And once those four people own those stems, they get to decide what the piece sounds like
0: for everybody else. Does that make sense? Actually... Maybe this will help answer that. What was the piece that was auctioned off for? Like, I think it was like two hundred fifty thousand dollars or something like that of uh, Brian Brinkman's. Um, ah, yes. Version of that. So, w- what was that? So,
1: so that's a great that's a great addition to the component, which um, <laughs> you might find to be more complicated. Um,
0: <laughs> so, so I may not know what this is, but it sounds super fascinating. No, no, it's so that'll good. at least be the outcome. You know,
1: usually, like once it clicks, people are like. Like oh my god I can't believe you know so uh, let me let me let me see if I can try and explain this maybe this will actually add more clarity so when the actual audio changes happen they get reflected in a visual way uh, so um, if you actually go on the Verdegree Ensemble website and you discover Betty's notebook you can actually see every single component that is tethered to a stem and to each variant so. The, the, the album cover art that Brian Brinkman actually created was um, – it, it changes as the audio changes. So like there's a woman on the album cover. Well, that's representative of Betty's voice. Every single time someone tethers or triggers uh, a focus on Fred Noonan or uh, Amelia Earhart, then all of a sudden the woman changes on the album cover art and that happens across the board. So what was auctioned, to answer your question, is the master track. The master track is the ever-changing master thing that that the owner gets. And in addition to to getting that, they're also getting a physical from Verdegris Ensemble um, of a radio that will reflect those changes in real time with an LCD screen and with, uh, with with speakers, so they're actually getting a physical in addition to owning the master NFT, that's changing. Um,
0: what? Yeah, You guys threw so much in there. Like when I compare what you're describing here in terms of the significance of the content that's included in this NFT versus the average NFT that I see, this is like so deep. The amount of effort that went into this, just the sheer magnitude of this project is crazy like that. It's it's impressive. It's also makes me think like this is not you know it got attention when the when that auction sold when uh, the the master sold. Um, I saw that, uh, but yeah, it, it just sounds like a really robust and potentially ongoing project. Like it sounds like when does when did the derivatives stop? My understanding was that there's some cap on that number. And that those have like sold out or something like that. Am I am I wrong about that?
1: So there are still still so there are three different tiers of limited edition NFTs. There's a platinum tier, a gold tier, and a silver tier. The platinum and gold both sold out pretty pretty immediately. We still have about like 900 uh, silver NFTs that I think will continue to to go as um, uh, you know as we continue to develop the project. You're right. It is it is. One of the and, and I think this is this is worth mentioning, Nick, because this is an important thing to talk about. Like we are we knew that at some point the NFT space was going to cool down. Um, and you know we're seeing that now. But we knew that it was gonna happen right around the time of Betty's notebook. And in fact, a week and a half after Betty's notebook sold, that's when everything started to cool down. So we we from the very beginning wanted to find a project that was that was going to like actually be really unique and really really different because that's ultimately Like, we didn't want to just, like, release another NFT. We saw that. We saw that with celebrities. We saw that, you know, with several different entities. Everybody was just at at a certain point just, like, releasing all sorts of crazy stuff. Some of it was good. Some of it was not. We wanted to make sure that there was really, really a lot of content here and a lot of behind-the-scenes work that went into it because we said, like, if we can do that, then we can maximize the potential for what this can sell for. And at the time, like in the very beginning, we were thinking, you know, it'd be nice if we sold it for like $20,000. And then quickly we were like, wow, maybe this is like worth more than $20,000. Maybe it's worth like more like 150. And that's like really what we aimed for. But what it ended up coming out with, when all was said and done was 375,000. And so like that was an outcome that we were not expecting by any means, and we were very lucky to get and it, it was a really great affirmation of um, of of sort of like the like what we what we created essentially. And I will say this, like the the derivatives like the derivatives of the limited edition nFTs at a certain point will stop once everybody buys. But the piece itself, the art side of it, the musical side of it, is continuing. We believe that this piece is, Really interesting. We we think it's really captivating, and we are we have big plans for it. Like we're we want like uh, MetaPurse, who was the buyer of the piece, agreed to um, for for a limited time or for an extended period to lend out the 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 radio to be shown at museums. And to be uh, toured in museums, the piece itself is the first classical music to be minted as an NFT, and so we want to submit that to to like awards and and recognitions and so on and so forth. And we believe that the art in and of itself is powerful enough and strong enough that it showcases, you know, a. a I mean, I would, I, I honestly, I've heard this for many times and as I've as I've sort of lived with it, with, with the piece, I think it's like, in some ways, it's a masterpiece in the sense that it, it accomplishes exactly what it sets out to do. You know, it's not something that I would like jam out to in the car, but it is something that I would watch in a theater. It's something that I would I would listen to in a, in a, in a museum. And so, yeah, from that perspective, we have big plans for this piece. You know, who knows if it's going to get as much as attention as we wanted to but at least we need to try
0: yeah i mean it feels like a historical artifact when you when you go to the website and you interact with it just the texture that you all have created it feels like a historical artifact when you're interacting with it outside of the fact that you're interacting with it via a website and so from that standpoint it makes it more difficult because the texture of the website almost doesn't match I feel like uh, where I'd picture this happening, like my scene that I have where, well, I I sit at a desk, that's kind of a a studio almost, but it it doesn't match where I'd imagine, maybe in the back of a library somewhere with like like sitting in some, uh, I I don't know, there's a lot of places you could envision it. It's different that historical artifact meets this uh, digital medium, which is really interesting. I want to ask, which is unrelated to my commentary just now, I just decided to throw that in, but the uh, you mentioned the platinum, the gold, and uh, the silver. What I don't understand is like you made it sound like the master is always changing. And now the master is the, the one, uh, to be clear, you said there were four people that could own four separate stems. The master, does that one that um, MetaPurse bought, does that change? And are they the ones turning the dial, which ends up, going downstream or like, if I go buy that today, that's a snapshot. Who influenced that?
1: Okay. Yeah. So let me, let me, let me just break this down really quickly. Um, and let's see if we can get to the bottom of this. So there are three layers, three parts to the, to the sale of this piece. There's the master at the very top, there's the stems in the middle, and then the limited edition NFTs at the bottom. So what is that? Um, let's start, uh, let's start from the top. So the master. Owning the master, you cannot influence the piece as the owner of the master. However, the benefit that you do get is you get to see the changes happen in real-time when someone triggers a new stem, and your name goes on every single limited edition NFT, whether it's gold, platinum, or silver, your name will always be there as the master owner. So that's what the master does. It's like, it's you can own it, you can experience it, you cannot change it.
0: Then you have the stems, the stems- well, Actually, hold on, let's Go just for pause Go there for, for, one, for, for one sec. Yeah. That master, do I always have access to the first version of what existed there in perpetuity? Correct. And And it also sounds like the changes where are those reflected for the master? Like ha- where where do they see those changes reflected?
1: They are, They see those changes reflected immediately, like either on the async art website, or anywhere they embed the file, or they'll be able to see it on the physical radio side of of the project. So anytime something changes, the master owner will see that change either on the async art website or on the radio.
0: But can they go back and see the past? They
1: uh, they can not through the master per se, but they can go back and see different past past iterations.
0: You can, and you, the way you can do that is through the uh, the other NFTs at uh, at the lower level. Correct. Okay. So yep. I got so I understand the master and the role that they have. So now I'm a stem owner.
1: Now you're a stem owner. You get to influence what everybody else hears. So as the stem owner. You can change aspect, an aspect or multiple aspects if you own multiple stems. You can change the 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 piece of music that everybody else hears, and that reflection automatically happens as soon as you trigger it. And as a result, you kind of economically have the power to influence uh, purchase transactions and sort of scarcity as a result. Um, and on top of that, your name gets put under ever uh, under the stem owners of the limited edition NFTs. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Okay. So uh, as the master, I'm not controlling anything, but I do own like the the masterpiece that everything is derived out of. and whatever wherever it stops, essentially, at whatever point, essentially my ensemble, which could have been one person if they bought all four, or it could be four people if they bought all four, or any you know math derivative of that uh, in between. Now those people are constantly changing and pulling on the strings, essentially, that changes the state of whatever NFT I can buy today.
1: That is correct.
0: Okay, and so and that's the last group, the platinum and gold. Those were influenced as well. I'm guessing in a similar way to the um, silver? Yes,
1: exactly. So as the buyer of platinum and gold, the only differences between platinum, gold and silver is just the scarcity. So there are five, I believe, platinum records. There are 10 or three platinum records. There are 10 gold records and there are something like a thousand silver records.
0: So theoretically, basically, like there is the possibility, let's say nothing changed. The STEM, the STEM people just went and bought it and then left forever, took on, went on vacation, or were just so rich that they don't even care because their uh, staff went and uh, bought it and put it in the archives. That they basically uh, now, uh, if I'm platinum, gold, or silver, if none of those STEMs change, I'm buying that version all the way down the chain. Correct. Okay, now I'm assuming that's not what happened, but that is a a theoretical outcome. Correct. So now, as of today, how many people ended up owning the stems?
1: Uh, Four people, uh, actually two people ended up owning the stems. So Metapurse
0: owns three and Maximo NX owns one. How are they approaching adjustments to these stems? Are they promoting this change? Or are they just doing it in silence?
1: So I, we, so we've actually been in close contact with MetaPurse in terms of all of this, and we have like a very specific uh, plan as to how the changes will will occur. Um, you know, as we continue to submit, um, you know, Betty's notebook to museums, to accolades, and you know, all this different stuff, um, and also like I think. I'm going to be at least mentioning this, if not talking about it, at NFT NYC. Um, you know, we'll have specific date points at which the certain stems change and and new things are triggered as a result.
0: Okay, well, this, this is uh, really fascinating. I appreciate you taking the time to break down each of those individual components, but I now yes. completely understand it. Uh, and that's useful. It sounds like a great NFT to purchase. The last question here then is, how much does it cost if I want to go get one of the silvers today?
1: Uh, it costs $100. So you can pay that either through cash. I believe that there's still uh, some in uh, in fiat, or it's, I think, 0.04 ETH, something like that, um, uh, that you can go and purchase today. And my recommendation is if if you're going to do that, then I would actually recommend buying One that you immediately snapshot and then one that you don't snapshot and that you keep for a very long time because over time this will update and change. And, you know, like there may be new owners that come into play. There may be things and events that happen that increase the scarcity. So I would recommend actually getting two, minting one as is currently and the second one holding on towards the perfect moment when things
0: actually like happen. Uh, Well, you've sold me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Nick, Um, that's great. So, all right, well, this was incredible and I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain Betty's Notebook and how you got into this space. It sounds like you have some exciting things ahead, but we'll share, uh, we'll save that for another day. So really, I appreciate you coming on. How can people find you? Uh,
1: so I'm on Twitter uh, and Instagram, at Sam Brookman, S-A-M-B-R-U-K-H-M-A-N. Um, if you're interested in Veridigree Ensemble, you can take a look at, uh, it, it's on, uh, Veridigree is on uh, Instagram and Twitter, Veridigree Ensemble, V-E-R-D-I-G-R-I-S Ensemble. Um, you'll find it very quickly or you can find it through me. And then finally, of course, we I, it would be I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you know how thankful we are for you know async's involvement in this project. And um, you know, please go and follow them. It's a great vision. It's a great company. Um, you know, at async Art on Twitter and Instagram. Um, uh, I think they have some really, really exciting things up ahead. And I'm looking forward to following that um, as they go along.
0: Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time today. Thanks, Nick. Really great to be here. That's it for this episode of the Nifty Nick podcast. And if you made it this far, make sure to subscribe at thenifty.com. Thanks again.